Good morning to everyone and welcome to The Well here at STSA where we are in part four of a series called... We are in part four of a series called... Say it like you mean it. It's not the worst that's yet to come. If it's the worst, I agree with you. But if it's the best, we say it with energy and passion because we are excited as to what God is going to do. God's been teaching us a lot in this series. we got two more parts today and next week. Before I get into today's session, what I wanted to tell you is about something that I experience on a regular basis. If you've ever followed me around, okay, or a priest dressed like me, what you'll discover is that contrary to popular belief, you know, we all have this idea that people don't like to talk about God. People don't like to talk about God. Well, follow me around and you'll discover that people love to talk about God. Because everywhere I go, people want to ask the uh, question that Father Timothy spoke about in the sermon today. The question you see when you, the question you ask when you see someone dressed like me is, what are you? Okay, what are you is the most common question that we get. And sometimes, depending on the mood that you're in, you kind of toy with them a little bit. You know, you say, I'm in a rush, hurry up, or I'm hungry, give me number four, please, or whatever it may be. But usually we're polite because usually the person is asking because they want to have a conversation about something that they don't know who to talk to about. And what I discovered is both inside the church and outside the church. This is not an outside the church thing only. This is inside the church. There are many misconceptions. There's many wrong ideas that we believe about God and about the church, but specifically about God and how God works with us. For example, some people believe that God, if you are a Christian, that God wants you to give up all fun and all pleasure. So anything fun is anti-God. And anything that's God is anti-fun. I know people. Again, this is church people. This is, not, this is not outside people. Church people who make decisions this way. They say, you know what, I'm going to do this. I say, why? They say, because uh, I really want to do that. And I, this is what's best for me. And I really think this, but I'm going to do that. Why? Because if I'm for it, God must be against it. That's how people make decisions. And people think that if there's something I enjoy, God must be against it. And if something I hate, that's clearly what God wants me to do. That's a misconception. No one said that God is against pleasure or fun. Another misconception is that all Christians are perfect people. In order to be a Christian, some people will think that I used to be a Christian, say I used to be a Christian, but I can't be anymore because I'm not perfect. And that is absolutely not true. Okay, one, we should put a sign up on the outside of the church that says perfect people need not apply. Because every single one of us has mess ups and has mistakes. And you know this because we have a very heavy emphasis on something called repentance and confession. So why would perfect people emphasize the need for confession unless we're all in the same boat? How about this one? Christians think they're better than everyone. Christians think they're better than everyone. It's a misconception. Christians think they're better than everyone. And I always try to explain to people, it's not that Christians, there's a difference between we think we are better and we think we have found better. There's a difference between the two. We don't think we are better, but we simply people who, who found something that we think is the best thing on the planet, so we love to share that. But the most common misconception that I see, and the one that I want to talk about today, being a Christian means God will solve all my problems, right? Being a Christian means I should have no problems. Life should be smooth. Life should be easy. I don't know if we got this from like the Disney movies where everyone just lives happily ever after. I don't know where this idea came from, but a lot of us believe that if I pray and I do good and I fast, and I do everything right, God should solve all my problems. We think that's what the meaning of blessed is, that everything should just go smooth in my life and everything should be easy. We, in essence, turn God into Santa Claus, which is why a lot of people, just so you know, think that God is just for kids. 
Because Santa Claus is for kids. Okay, hopefully no one's underage, whatever, in this room, okay? <laughs> should have put a warning at the beginning. If you're watching this on YouTube, should have put a warning. Okay, this is not for kids under whatever age. God, we people think that Santa Claus is just for kids, and God is kind of like Santa Claus. Like he's got the naughty list and the nice list, and then he's watching over you and, you know, sleep by night or whatever it may be, and then Christmas is Santa's birthday or Jesus' birthday. It's someone's in birthday in there. We have this idea that if I do everything right, my life should work out. Show of hands. How many people have a perfect life? How many people in this room? Is there anyone here, anyone here whose experience matches this? Anybody? We would love to meet you, okay? If your life is perfect and you got no problems, we would actually, what we love to do is we'd love to pray for you, okay? I would really love to pray for you, okay? And give you a little bit of that in my prayers or something may be. There's not real people. There's no such thing as a person, no matter how close they are to God, no matter how much they trust, no matter how much their faith, that all the problems are solved. And my experience says that usually it's the exact opposite. That gets us to what we're going to talk about today. Our main point for today that we want to discuss is the godly life, unfortunately, is never a straight line between two points. The godly life is never a straight line between two points. We think it should be. And we would love for it to be, but reality is, that's not how it works. We think, I pray, I get the job. That's how it works. I pray, I get the girl. I pray, the guy finally puts a ring on the finger. That's how we think it should work. I pray, prayer gets answered. We think that, how about this one? That I'm a little bit of extra generous in the money box over here, and then when it's promotion time over here, that's how it's supposed to work. God, don't you know that's the rules? You wrote the rules. It's like give and it will give back to you something like that. Somewhere in the Bible, probably near the end or somewhere like that. We think that parents, if we fast hard enough and we try our best and we do everything that we can, that God will cast out that demon from our children, the demon called teenager. Maybe you've heard of this demon before. <laughs> that God can just cast it out once and for all. We think, think of the godly life. We want the godly life to be like an interstate highway. We want it to be a big, wide open road, four or five lanes, six lanes across, something big, moves fast. Okay, you can kind of transition very quickly and then if you need a rest stop, you can pull over at any point in time. That's not the godly life. The godly life is less of an interstate highway and it's more a windy road up a mountain. You ever driven up a mountain? Okay, you ever had this experience where you drive up a long, windy road of mountain? You can't go fast. Okay, and then sometimes you'd be driving and just hairpin turns, so you got to be very, very careful. And then sometimes it'll twist back this way. Sometimes it'll just be a big sign that says closed right here. You know, a boulder just fell right here. And you got to go backwards and you got to find your way around. The godly life, think less interstate highway, think more mountain road. And the worst part of the mountain road, what makes the mountain road the most challenging to drive on is the visibility is never good. It's always foggy up that mountain. You can never see further than just what's right in front of you. And that's what makes it so challenging. But here's the good news. Up the mountain of God's will, of God's path, the godly life, up the mountain, that journey, every now and then there are signs. And the signs say, the best is yet to come. The signs say, keep going. Don't stop. Keep fighting. You're almost there. You may not see it because, again, that visibility is really low. 
and all you see are these turns and the difficulty and potholes and my car got scratched and why is that boulder right there? And there's a bear, oh my goodness. That's all you see. But every now and then there's a sign that says, keep going, keep going, keep going. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Ruth is one of those signs. The book of Ruth. It's a signpost along the road. That's there to give us encouragement and hope. And it's there to tell us that regardless of what you see today or regardless of what you don't see today, keep going. The best is yet to come. Don't quit. Because God, as we've been saying from out the beginning of this series, God is the great maestro of the universe. And the maestro is always working. And the maestro is sometimes pulling over here and he's pushing over here. And he's leading over here and he's pulling back. The maestro is never asleep on your life. It may seem like it. It may seem like it's just pothole after pothole, road closed after road closed, but the maestro knows what he's doing. So stick with him in the end because that's how God's road work. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. He said, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. That's why this misconception about the godly life should be easy. That's not, not, not according to Jesus. Jesus made it very, very clear. He says the godly life is a difficult road. And a lot of people are going to quit. A lot of people are going to get up that mountain. They're going to say, I don't know if I can make that turn. I quit. Or you may get past that and you say, well, I don't know what's over there. I can't see. So I need to only be where I can see. And a lot of people will go and they'll pull back on it because it's just too hard. And it's too, I don't like to lose control and I don't know what's coming. And I, I can't see, so pull the plug on it. And Ruth is there to tell us. The best is yet to come. Keep going. Don't give up. We think the godly life should be a straight line between two points. The godly life should be, God blesses me, God blesses me, God blesses me, then I get to go to heaven. <laughs> Yay, God! That wasn't the life, that wasn't the, find me one great character from the scriptures. That wasn't the life for, for King David, okay? Guy was anointed king, great, great, great for him. And then he spent the rest of how many years running for his life from the other king who didn't like him. That wasn't that way for Joseph, guy chosen by God to be like the savior of his people. But he, you know how it started for Joseph? By his brothers picking him up and throwing him in a well. Let me say that one again. His brothers threw him in a well. I have two brothers. We used to fight all the time. Brothers fight. We didn't never throw anybody in a well. There's just like certain, like we don't do that, okay? Like we don't hit in the face, okay? We don't use weapons. We don't throw in wells. Like there's just simple, basic rules he got thrown in a well. No great person of God experienced the godly life without going through some bumps and bruises along the way. Ruth is there to remind us the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come, regardless what you see. Regardless if you think this road is leading nowhere, it's leading somewhere. Regardless of what you see, that there's no good, that come, no good can come from it. The best is yet to come because God has his ways. And as we learn from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, say this part with me altogether, so are my ways higher than your ways. Again, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Always hope, no matter how dim, no matter how hopeless, no matter how much despair, no matter how dark, there's always hope because God has his ways. God is never painted in a corner. God is never limited. God never has his arms tied behind his back. God never falls asleep at the job. Never you knock on heaven and it's out to lunch. Be back at two o'clock. God is always working. God has his ways. That's the message for Ruth. And we're going to see that 
We've been seeing it, and we're going to continue to see it. Because if you've been with us from the beginning of this series, the life of Naomi and Ruth. Ruth is the main character, but really Naomi's kind of the main character. She's actually in it much more than Ruth, but Ruth is kind of the star of the show. Naomi's her mother-in-law. Their life has been one setback after another, has been one tragedy. But through it all, okay, through it all, and we'll see it right now as we kind of recap it, through it all, you don't see any miracles in the story of Ruth. There's no miracles in the story of Ruth. However, God's presence is undeniable in every page of the book. And I think that's how God works in our life. No miracles. Sometimes miracles, but seldom miracles. But that doesn't mean that God isn't working using natural means to accomplish his supernatural purposes. Let's remind ourselves of where we started here with Ruth and where we got to where we are. Chapter one was the most miserable chapter on the planet. Okay, everyone left here on chapter one being like, oh my goodness, this lady's got it tough. We met this lady named Naomi, who was an ordinary family, and Naomi had tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. First, it started with a famine in her land. She left her land to go to a, the land of Moab, which was where the bad guys lived. As soon as she got to Moab, husband died. Next thing, her kids got married to Moabite women, which is not a good thing, but it works out okay for her in the end. Married these Moabite women, and then son number one dies, son number two dies, daughter-in-law number one splits and leaves out of town. Ruth is left, I'm sorry, Naomi is left with just Ruth, and that's why at the end of chapter one, Naomi said, the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Okay, her name is Naomi, it means pleasant, but she said, don't call me Naomi, because it's inappropriate to call me Naomi. Call me bitter, call me Mara, because the hand of God has been against me. Chapter two, things started to turn. We saw a glimmer of hope. That's where we saw Boaz appear on the screen. And Boaz is a relative of Naomi's, and she needed a relative in order to marry Ruth, okay, because in order for the inheritance to stay in the land, everything to work out, there had to be a relative. We didn't know there was a relative. All of a sudden, we find that here is Boaz. But what are the chances that A, Naomi's going to be, or Ruth is going to be able to find Boaz, and if she finds him, what are the chances B, that he's even going to be into her? Well, the great maestro knows what he's doing. He puts them together in a, in a unique set of circumstances. It must be coincidence. We know it's not coincidence. They meet. He looks past her being a widow, looks past her being a Moabite. He's into her. She's into him. He changes his status on the Facebook to whatever it may be. And she changes whatever, a profile, whatever it may be. And the love connection is beginning. But then it reaches a point of like, well, we don't know what's going to happen next. Like God is working and everything's going to work out fine. Then we got to chapter three. Chapter three was last week. The title of the message was the power of synergy, which is just because God is doing his part doesn't mean we don't have to do our part. Synergy means that God's full control doesn't negate the need for my full participation, okay? So Naomi and Ruth needed to do their part. So what they did, they came up with this plan. It was a weird plan, okay, to bring Ruth and Boaz together. But hey, what's a single Moabite girl to do these days, okay? So she had to do what she had to do. So they came up with this weird thing about the uncovering of the feet and the laying at the thing. And it was a weird thing. If you missed it last week, you go catch it up online. And we ended last week saying, this is great. Boaz is into Ruth. Ruth is into Boaz. They're about to ride off into the sunset. But then, because we said this is the Bible's version of a rom-com, every rom-com needs a twist. And the twist is, the Boaz says, as the, as the credits are about to roll, okay? Boaz says, but I'm actually not your closest relative. Dun, dun, dun. And then you see, like, in the, the to be continued, okay, next week, what will happen? Will, Bo, will, will true love win? Okay, and will lovers be able to unite or will the evil, wicked 
close relative guy who we don't know who he is. We just assume he's evil. Well, that guy, he stinks. Well, he have to take, and we don't know what's going to happen. And that's where we pick up the story today in chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins after, like I said, they figured this situation out that they're into each other, but there's a close relative. They spent the night together. No hanky-panky funny stuff, but they spent the night together. Now we are on the next day. Ruth, chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. Okay, we're going to break a few things down here in this verse. First says, went up to the town gate and sat there. The town gate was kind of like the town square. It was where business matters happened. It's where you had people, like if deals had to be brokered, Maybe like a city council or something like that, or like a DMV kind of, I don't know. But it's a place where people would, would come and transactions would take place. Kind of like the city courthouse, not DMV. Courthouse is probably better, okay? So Boaz is, shows up there. And then the best part of the verse, and behold, the close relative whom Boaz had spoken came by. That word, and behold, what's and behold mean? How many and behold moments do you think happen in your day that you don't pay attention to? Like, Boaz just shows up, and all of a sudden, and behold, the guy just happens to be there. Like, the guy I'm looking for happens to be there. Like, what are the chances? What are the odds? Well, my question to you is, we know nothing is coincidence with God, but how many and behold moments do you think you have in your day that you're not paying attention to? And behold, I ran into so-and-so at this time. Must have been random. Must have been a coincidence. Must have been nothing. And behold, the phone rang, and someone invited me too. And behold, I got that text message. I got that email. And behold, this verse popped in front of me. I'm telling you, there's no such thing as and behold. God is working. The and beholds of life, that's God working. And God brought this random relative who we never thought we'd even know who he is. And he happened to show up on the first day. So Boaz calls him over. And he says, come aside, friend. Sit down here. Now this expression, friend, come aside, friend. The word friend is a very generous translation. Other translations, like King James, older ones, say, would say it this way. Ho, such a one. When Boaz sees him, he says, ho, such a one. The word friend, ho, such a one, literally, it comes from the word, is a muted name. So what's obvious here is Boaz doesn't think very highly of this guy. He's in essence saying, hey, Mr. No-Namer. Hey, bud. Hey, guy, Boaz doesn't think highly of him, and we'll see why in a little bit that Boaz doesn't think very highly of him. But he tells him, hey, guy, I got an offer for you. Offer you can't refuse. Verse 3. Then he said to the close relative, again, no name, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to her brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. So he tells him, you remember uh, Elimelech? Remember, remember, you, you heard, remember this guy, that guy from that Thanksgiving, okay, the guy a little too much eggnog at Christmas, whatever. remember that guy? You may have forgotten him. He's like, oh yeah, I remember him. Well, remember whatever happened to his wife? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right, that Naomi lady, she moved over there. Well, you know she's back. Oh, that's great. But you know she's a widow. And you know, after she became a widow, Elimelech left his land to her and she didn't have anyone to take care of it. So if you want it, if you want to redeem it, redeem it. 
Then he says, but if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there's no one but you to redeem it, and I'm next after you. So he just says very simply, you remember that lady? This and this happened. Her land is for sale. You want it? If not, I'll take it. I mean, I can take it off your hands if you want it, but it's just, you know, if, if you want it. The guy responds. He said, yes, I will redeem it. To which we are like, no, stop the wedding. I object. Does anyone here say any frightful? I object. No, no, it's going bad. And Boaz is like, hold your horses, man. Just like we saw last chapter, Naomi and Ruth had a plan. Boaz got a plan. And he knows that it's ultimately under the plan of the great maestro. He says, cool your jets there. Verse five. And Boaz said, okay. <clears throat> but just FYI, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. He says, oh yeah, I think, what did I tell you? I think I forgot to mention that Ruth actually comes, I'm sorry, Naomi comes with Ruth. And Ruth is her daughter-in-law. So you got to not only just take the land and widow A, you got to take the widow B with you. And the guy's thinking, hey, wait a minute. This land comes with two widows? <laughs> and not just that, but a young widow. And the young widow is probably going to want to have babies. So I got a two widows, one of whom is a mother-in-law widow, okay? And she probably naggy, probably, okay, we don't know that, but you know what I mean. And then the other one is going to have babies, and I'm going to have to raise these babies take care of the land and raise these babies. And what's going to happen to the land in the end? It's actually not going to go to me. It's go to them babies. So I had a lot of work. I go back to kids in diapers. Okay, I already got rid of the crib. Okay, put, got rid of it on, on, on Facebook or whatever, the marketplace. I'm trying to move away from that direction. And now all of a sudden, so the guy's rethinking it. Verse 6. And then the close relative said, um, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This guy got hustled. This guy got played. Boaz tricked this guy into thinking that he didn't want it. He said, okay, if you don't want it, I guess I'll just do it, you know, just for, for your sake. The guy says, no, thank you. I got my own inheritance. I got my own 401k. You know, if we had like the two different 401ks, it could get complicated. So you, you take yours. I'll keep mine. Oof, I, I, I pulled a fast one on Boaz. I tricked him. And Boaz sees this road, this windy road that Boaz has been driving and Ruth and Naomi have been driving all the twists and turns, all the hairpin, all the whatever it may be, all of that, all of that. All of a sudden, Boaz sees the path is clear. Hit the gas. Verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was confirmation in Israel. They had weird things with feet back then, okay? I don't know why, but they're big on feet. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. That's remember Mr. Sick and Tired. Those were the two sons. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his, among his people, from his brethren and from his position at the gate, you are witnesses this day. And you say, Woo! and before you're, you're about to start clapping, the wedding is on, there's actually still one more tiny little setback that we have to overcome. 
And you'll see what that is. I'm going to show you the next verse. The next verse is the people's response to this news. Okay, the people who have been sitting and watching this whole uh, uh, episode play out in front of us, their response tells us what's another obstacle that still needs to be overcome. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. Now watch this part. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. What's the other hurdle that actually has existed from the beginning, but it, was, it wasn't stated overtly, which is that Ruth is barren. And how do we know that Ruth had a problem bearing children? Because remember, she had been married 10 years to Mr. Sick or Mr. Tired. She'd been married 10 years without any kids. That's not common back in these days. It wasn't like, yeah, I'm working on my career. That, that, like you got married, you had babies. So the fact that 10 years didn't have babies means there was some kind of problem. Now, Boaz, knowing she's a Moabite, knowing she's a widow, knowing she is barren, marries her. And these ladies, okay, the witnesses all around, they put into words what Boaz had in his heart and what God must have revealed to him, which is that God is about to solve this setback as well. That this final obstacle, God is about to take care of that. And I love the expression, may you be famous, may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. We know, okay, when you talk about Bethlehem and famous, what name comes to mind when you say famous in Bethlehem? That's Jesus. We know someone who was very famous was born in Bethlehem. And actually, this prophecy comes true because it comes, we'll see, out of Ruth and Naomi's lineage. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. She is barren no more. Ruth remarries Boaz. He goes into her, which means this time he didn't just uncover the feet. More stuff got uncovered there, okay? But a child is conceived. A prayer is answered. Joy is restored. Before we start rolling up the final credits on the book, the book finishes up. Like I said, I know the book is titled Ruth, but really the character who has the most attention in it is actually Naomi. She was all over chapter one, and actually the book is going to end the final few verses, focus back on Naomi, not on Ruth. Verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. Oh, it will be famous, don't you worry. And may he be a restorer of life. May he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. This is not about Boaz. This is about the baby, okay? A restorer of life, okay, it's prophetic. And nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has borne him. I like that expression, better to you than seven sons. Well, how can one son be better than seven? Like the expression doesn't make any sense. How can this one son be better than seven? Well, very simple. I told you just around the corner from the worst is God's okay. Just around the corner from the worst is God's 50-50. Just around the corner from the worst is God's best. God doesn't give 50-50. God doesn't give okay. And when God brings a son, you better believe that's going to be a special son. Better than seven sons could have given you. And we're about to see that. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom. 
and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, there is a son born to Naomi. That's an interesting expression. There's a son born to who? Is that a typo? Did they mix up the names, the way I keep mixing up the names? A son born is to Ruth. Like Naomi didn't have a baby. Did Naomi have a baby? That'd be a real miracle. Why they say it's Naomi's baby? Why the women said a son is born to Naomi and not to Ruth is the important part here. Follow me. This is not a story about a barren woman who was a widow having a baby. This is not a like, someone was sad, they prayed, God gave him little junior to carry on the family business. Oh, what a cute Christmas story. Christmas miracle. That's not this. The story is not about a baby. The story is not about an answered prayer. The story is a microcosm of something much greater, which is desperation, hope, fulfillment. That's what this story is. It's not, the authors make it very clear. It's not just Ruth had a baby. What's very clear is you had in chapter one, a woman who said, the hand of God is against me. I am very bitter. Do not call me pleasant. God is against me. He's working against me. Everything in life is against me. I can't take it anymore. And then by the end of it, you have a woman who has everything that she could possibly imagine, even a son, even though it's not even her own son. But the author's trying to say that just around the corner from the worst, just around the corner from the worst is God's best. The road was windy. It was not a straight. We, we would have loved it as prayer one, prayer two, prayer three, reward. But the godly life is never a straight line. The godly life is twists and turns. The godly life is boulders and bears. But in the end, God always has a plan. He knows what he's doing. The maestro never runs out of ways because his ways are higher than our ways. So let's, let's see how that applies to Ruth and see how we can apply it to us. The maestro is always a work. The maestro never has get painted in a corner. In the beginning, when Naomi lost her sons and her husband, was God working? In the beginning, when Naomi had nothing, everything was against her, was God working? Yes, he gave her the best. God was giving her the best when she didn't see it. What was the best that she received in the beginning? Ruth. Not just a daughter-in-law, the best daughter-in-law on the planet. Anybody here want to make a case that they're a better daughter-in-law than Ruth? Nobody's better. So Naomi, everything is against me, everything is against me, everything is against me. No, God's giving you something. And God's giving you the best because just around the corner from the worst is God's best. God gave you a daughter-in-law. God gave you the best daughter-in-law who's going to save your life. Later on, for Ruth now, Ruth does the right thing. She's loyal to the mother-in-law. And now all of a sudden, she's back and she got nobody to marry. And she's just going to be barren the rest of her life. Was God working? Absolutely, he was working. Because he gave a relative to Naomi. And who was that relative? The best relative as you can imagine. Not just any old guy, but a Boaz. A rich, a single, single and rich. That's pretty much all it takes, okay? That's the best. Okay, what, what, anything else? Oh, godly, that was a third one. I knew there was a third one somewhere. Okay. Godly is very important. That's actually the most important single girls, okay? But, well, single is important too, okay? You need all three, okay? Not rich, but at least has a job, and you know what I'm saying, okay? Not living in the basement trying to find himself or going to Europe or something like that. Anyway, she gave him, when there's nobody to marry, there's nobody to marry, I'm never going to get married. No, you're going to get married. And it's not just going to be any tired old husband. You're going to have the best, the godly, the single, the rich, the man who's going to not just be taking care of you, but he's going to take care of your mother-in-law and fight for you. 
when Ruth said, I don't know how I'm going to meet this guy. Like, I hear of this Boaz guy, but how am I going to meet him? It's unimaginable. There's no way. Like, how are we going to connect? Does God have his ways? Absolutely. Again, last week we saw the feet thing. We thought that was really weird, but I'm going to go with, at that time, that's the best way to do it. Okay, again, emphasizing at that time. We're not doing that stuff today, okay? But at that time, that was the best way. And God brought it together. Bottom line, when all was dark, all was hopeless, there was no visibility, everything is worse, my life is bitter, God was giving her the best of the best. And eventually, it culminates in this son who is not just any son born to Naomi, but we know he's the best son because the final verse says this. They called his name Obed, that's the son to Ruth. And Obed turned out to be the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And if you know anything about the Bible or Christian history, you know that David is a very important character because David is the lineage, is the ancestry of Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus, many times, spoke and said, I'll call me son of David. So from David came Jesus. And who, where did David come from? He came from Jesse, who came from Obed, who came from Ruth, who's connected also to Naomi in a familiar way as well. Bottom line is this, ladies and gentlemen. The story of Ruth is a much bigger story than we realize. Well, let's start with them. It's a bigger story than they realized. Again, they were fighting for, thinking that it was just like, I'm sad, I don't have a husband, I don't have a baby, I don't have land, there's no food. They, that's what they thought was taking place. But God is like, look, your story is much bigger. Your story, what's taking place here is much bigger than that. I'm working the story of salvation for the universe. I'm bringing not just a son for you, I'm bringing a son for me the son of God. So it's not just like, yeah, do I remember her? Do I no, I'm, I'm, I'm working my eternal plan through you. But just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not taking place. But you know, trust me, Ruth, trust me, Naomi, that just around the corner from the worst is God's best. So maybe, maybe in your situation, maybe God is working in a bigger way than you realize. I want to say it this way. For children of God, there's always a connection between life's everyday events and God's everlasting purposes. And I hope you believe it. For the child of God, there's always a connection between everyday events, things that just seem so ordinary, so common, and God's everlasting purposes. So now, like, I'm going to throw it back to you. What great everlasting purpose might God be working right now in your life? right now as we speak. What pain, what pain may be in your life, this hardship, this trial, and you're like, God, I can't take it, I can't take it, I can't take it, it's just too much, I can't take it. But maybe there's something more to the pain. Maybe there's like a purpose. Maybe God is the ultimate recycler. Okay, I don't know if you heard this before. God is a recycler. God doesn't just give you pain and take it, you throw it away. God allows the pain. There's a purpose, but you don't see it now because that mountain road, that visibility is so low, but if you, if you, if you got the, you get there because just around the corner from the worst is God's best. What prayer that you've been praying forever and ever and ever and God just is saying, no, 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 no. And you're just like, God, I can't take it anymore. And God knows, it says, if you only knew, if you only knew what I'm doing behind the scenes, what I'm setting up, Naomi, if you only knew, at the beginning of chapter one, what I'm about to do in chapter four. Ruth, if you only knew when you're suffering and you're sad, if you only knew what's about to come. 
and how for generation after generation after generation, like us right now, are talking about Naomi and Ruth. And forever, as long as there's people on this planet and the word of God exists, people will be talking about Naomi and Ruth. If you only knew. How about you? For a child of God, there's nothing ordinary. For a child of God, everything has meaning. I'll give you a verse right here. St. Paul says it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in earth and vessels. We have a treasure in earth and vessels. That's why we are hard-pressed on every side, yet we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We have a treasure in an earthen vessel. Earthen vessel, jars of clay, means basically a trash can. That's what that means. It's just a piece of, like a pottery. Okay, like, like if you saw an earthen vessel, you would just knock it over and be like, okay, someone put that in the trash. But what, what, what St. Paul is saying, we have treasures in earthen vessels that God gives us diamonds, God gives us pearls, God gives us everlasting eternal things, but it doesn't always come in an eternal everlasting package. Sometimes it's a diamond inside a Happy Meal box is what it may be. That's what God gives. You look at it and you say, I don't want that box. That box is trash. Nothing good can come from that box. Oh, but hold your horses. Because maybe, just maybe, there's a treasure inside it. Because with our Heavenly Father, there's a verse that says, I didn't bring it up on the screen, but there's a verse that says, you know this verse is very important. It says, not a tear from your eyes is ever wasted in front of God. It's from Psalm 56. It says, every tear that you've ever cried, God keeps it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Naomi crying? Sad. And God catching her tear. And says, I know it hurts, Naomi, but trust me. And he holds on to it. You know every tear you've ever cried? Every tear you've ever cried. Every tear you've ever cried. There's not a tear that anyone's ever cried. We know that every hair that falls, even every hair that falls in our head. Every tear, every, nothing Nothing is ordinary. If he allows it, he's got a plan and he's working, and you got to trust it. If he allows it, he's got a plan and he's working, you got to trust it. So you know what? You lost that job. My heart goes out to you. Maybe it's not the end of the world. Maybe God's got a plan. Maybe it's going to work out okay. God hasn't answered that prayer to open your womb yet, and that's tough. My heart goes out to you. Maybe God's got a plan. You're struggling in that situation with a child, a sickness, a parent, a loved one. You're praying and you're fasting. And God seems like the hand of the Lord is against me. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. The hand of the Lord is against me. Maybe there's a purpose. Keep going. Keep driving up the mountain. Just around the corner from the worst is God's best. Keep going. I don't know what it is, but keep going. Keep going. That's what Naomi would say. Naomi was here right now. If I took off the microphone and gave it to her and said, Naomi, preach to us. She'd say, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. I kept going. I didn't want to go. I wanted to quit. I wanted to yell. I wanted to scream. I wanted to die. But I kept going. Thank God I kept going. Ruth, tell us your experience. Ruth would say, trust me. Trust me. That just around the corner from the worst is God's best. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. I keep calling God the great maestro the great maestro. I'm not a music guy, but I'm a logic guy. Any great song has to have highs and lows. A song that's just highs would be very loud and be very boring. A great song, a melody, has to have ups and downs, highs and lows. Maybe you're in a low right now. 
I get that. My heart goes out to you. I don't think, tr- my heart goes out to you. I bet you if we said who's in the hole right now, everybody raised their hand. I'd probably raise a foot too, okay, whatever I could get up in the air. Everyone, there ain't a person in here who doesn't have. But what I'm saying is, I don't know what song God is writing, but I trust the songwriter. Trust the songwriter. His track record is pretty good. And that's why we got this tree up here. Madonna spoke about it a little bit earlier. That's why we got this tree right here. Okay, and this tree, in case you missed it earlier, what we're doing is we got this tree and we're filling out these leaves right here, okay? You get a chance to write. You can pick one up in the, in the outside after we finish. And this is a chance for you to write one of two things. A, how you have been a time in a time where you were in the worst and how God, just around the corner from the worst, came God's best. And if that happened to you, write it down. I'm telling you, there's power in writing it down. There's power in writing it down. That's why so often God said, when I did something, you remember it every year. That's where all the feasts came from. I did this on a yearly basis. You remember I did this. That's number one. The second thing that you can do is a a situation where you are in the worst and you haven't turned that corner yet. But this is a sign of faith, a statement of faith that's saying, I don't know where this road is going, but God, I am not quitting. So I am praying and I am trusting you and I will continue to go on this road. And I see another twist and turn and I didn't need another twist and turn. God, I needed a straight line between two points, but you put the the twist there. I trust you. I trust you. And what I'm going to do for you to give you a little incentive. When all is said and done, we finish this series. We finish before Thanksgiving. Okay, so Thanksgiving is the, is the perfect time to thank God no matter what the situation is. I'm going to take all these. Okay? And Father Timothy and I are going to take all these and we're going to pray over every single one of these. How's that for some incentive to write your card up there now? We're going to pray. We're going to thank God for the great stories like the few ones that we read a little bit earlier. And we're going to pray and say, God, the ones who are in, in that tough time, we're just going to put it in front of God. We can't do anything. We're just going to put it in front of God and say, God, give this person the strength to keep on going because we trust that just around the corner from the worst is God's best. And that's our theme of this series. Life may not be a straight line. It never is. But keep going. There's twists and there's turns, but keep going. There's boulders and there's bears, but keep going. No matter what you see, no matter what you experience, no matter what you're feeling, Keep going and just know that when we get there at the end, the best is always yet to come. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, a lot of people right now are going through tough times and it's hard for us sometimes to believe that you have a purpose and you have a plan in it, Lord, but we trust you with all of our heart. And I pray that you would increase our faith like Naomi and Ruth to to see this lesson, Lord, and to keep going, to keep being faithful, to keep being obedient and trusting you with the consequences, to keep doing our part. Give us, Lord, that faithfulness and that determination, Lord, that we need to get to the end of this road. We love you, Lord, and we trust you with all of our hearts. No matter what we see, Lord, we trust you, we trust you, we trust you. We pray that you would accept this prayer in the name of our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ with the intercessions and prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks so much for joining. Have a great week. We'll see you back next week.